Good morning, friends. As has become customary, we take a few moments to allow others to log on and to get set up with the sound and everything else. Maybe a cup of coffee, uh, some bookies, morning tea, whatever you are doing to prepare for the service this morning, uh, take a few moments to do that. We'll come back in a minute or two as the service starts. But uh, in the meanwhile, drop us a comment, send us a, a like button, let us know where you're watching from. Welcome to all of you. We'll be back in a second. This beautiful sunny Sunday morning here in Bundaberg. Wherever you are worshipping this morning or whenever time you're watching this, welcome to you. Know that as two or more are gathered in his name, God is with us and God is above time and space. And so as you watch this, you are counted amongst those as we worship together, the family of God here at Bundaberg Uniting Church. A special word of welcome if this is the first time you are connecting up with us. It's good to have you and it's a special service today because it's Pentecost Sunday. You can see our Pentecost banner is up as well as our other beautiful banners and uh, our banner for the series, Soul Keeping, taking care of the most important part of who you are. Today is our second uh, in the series and uh, we look forward to uh, dealing with the spirit and the soul and finding out how God speaks to us through the message of Pentecost about the care of our souls. Friends, as I said in the beginning, send us a like, drop us a comment, let us know where you're watching from. If you have some questions or things that you want to say, interact with us in the sermon. One of the great advantages of uh, live streaming the service is the opportunity for interaction. We'll get to those comments, uh, at least if not today, then through the week. And uh, we'd like to interact with you like that. And so as we begin the service, if you could turn to those who are around near you, and if you're on your own, hear me say to you, the peace of the Lord be with you. Thank you. God bless. Friends, just as I mentioned last week, our sermon series is entitled Soul Keeping, and it's based on the book by the same name, written by John Ortberg, who is a minister in the United States in the Presbyterian Church in Menlo Park. And uh, I've used his books extensively in the preparation of this series, as well as the works of Dallas Willard and Eugene Peterson, amongst a few others as well. So I'd like to just give that acknowledgement and credit uh, to them and to say that I'm very grateful for their faithfulness in ministry and for their willingness to share their resources in the way that they do. Thanks also to Jenny, who's made our beautiful banner up behind us. And uh, hopefully this week you can see it a bit better. And uh, we've moved it a bit forward and brought it out. And uh, that forms a kind of a backdrop to our whole sermon series of soul keeping. Let us open with a word of prayer. Lord God, as we join our hearts in worship this morning, we thank you for your spirit that has been poured out at Pentecost, that is poured out upon us. We thank you, Lord God, that you have not left us alone in this world, but that you have promised the spirit and that you keep your promises, that the power of the spirit reigns in our hearts and in our lives, that the power of the spirit enables us to be faithful, 
that the power of the Spirit connects our soul to your soul, speaks to us and convicts us of unrighteousness, brings to us a sense of satisfaction when our souls are in harmony, when we find ourselves body, mind, spirit, and, and soul integrated together with the will of God. We thank you, Lord, for the work of your Spirit that ministers to us, that allows us to, to know that we are in a personal relationship with you. We thank you that the Spirit intercedes for us. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for your faithfulness, for the still small voice that so often speaks into our lives, that leads us and guides us. To you be all the honor and glory and praise this morning. We thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity we have to worship together, that even though we may not be physically in the same place, right throughout the whole world, we are connected with brothers and sisters who join in this service, whether live or recorded, who listen to your word and who seek to know your plan for their lives, your will for their souls, to grow in faithfulness, to learn of your love, and to know more about the touch and the infilling of your Holy Spirit. Minister to us, we pray, Lord God. We ask that you would speak in words that we would understand, in, th in ways that make sense, that we would know beyond any shadow of a doubt that your Spirit lives in us and has touched us through the service this morning. We pray these things as together we pray the prayer you taught us. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Friends, our reading this morning is predictably the story of Pentecost. It's what takes place as the disciples have been waiting for the power of the Spirit to come upon them. Christ ascended into heaven and told them to wait in Jerusalem. And then on the day of Pentecost, this is what happened. I'm reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, skipping a little bit in the middle, going over to verse 36. To verse 47. So Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 21, skipping a middle section of, uh, of the message that Peter brings and then picking it up again at verse 36 through to verse 47. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, 
Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then over to verse 36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, part of our worship is to express our love for God and the gifts that we give him and as has become part of how we do the live stream services we take a moment to thank God for those gifts and to dedicate those offerings to him thanking him that he is a God who provides all of our needs and as we take use of this opportunity let me uh, just say that there are details for online giving on our website there's a link that's easy to find and uh, if you would like to um, support the work of the church in terms of worshiping God through your gifts. This is an avenue that you can do that. Also, the office is open during the week and you're welcome to drop off envelopes uh, or offerings there. 
Many thanks to those who have continued to be faithful uh, throughout this time. So let us bring those gifts to God this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you with what we have, and not just with our voices and with our ears. We worship you with everything that we own, for we know that everything comes from you. We give to you, Lord, not because we feel we have to, but like any gift, because we love you and we want to bless you with these gifts. May you know through these gifts we give that money is not who we serve, but you are our Lord and Savior. All we have honors you. Take them, we pray, and use them to further your work through this church and this community. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Friends, if you do online giving, please just in the reference page mark it City Offering and uh, you can delete your name. You don't have to. Uh, it can be completely um, anonymous. <clears throat> As we prepare to hear the sermon, let us ask the Spirit to speak in ways we understand. Holy Spirit, minister to us with words that make sense, in ways that are relevant. Whatever is said, Lord, may you take what is spoken and put it in such a way that it makes sense in our lives and the situations we face. Speak into our hearts. Open our ears. Let our souls connect with you. For we, Lord, are your children and desire to be faithful. Speak, Lord, for we are listening. Amen. <clears throat> As we've entered into the series on soul-keeping, I've been a kind of awakened to the amount of times soul language and the concept of souls are used in and around us, whether it be Christian or, uh, or non-Christian circles. There's a fascination with souls. There's a deep knowledge of this kind of connecting presence within us. Like I say, in all circles in life. About a hundred years ago, a doctor decided to try and measure the weight of a soul. What he did was he, he said that there was a slight weight loss when somebody died. And so he took seven tuberculosis patients who were on the point of death he weighed them before and, and just after they died. He found out what they each lost in weight. He did a quick calculation, worked out an average, and concluded that the soul, since that was what was leaving the body and he computed that was uh, what the weight loss was, the weight of a soul was an average of 21 grams. It turned out to be a little bit more in fat people. <clears throat> I had to smile when I saw the sign in South Africa this week. Well, let me just give you some context first. In South Africa, the lockdown has been particularly strict. And for the last seven or eight weeks or so, there has been a complete ban on the sale of alcohol and cigarettes, a complete ban. Can you imagine how that would have gone down in Australia? I mean, if you think stockpiling toilet paper was a problem, well, I don't think we would have seen anything if that was, uh, was the case. I saw an Australian sign that read, it takes a village to raise a child and a distillery to homeschool one. And uh, I think that's probably 
closer to the truth than we'd like to admit. I don't think Australia would have managed too well if there was a, a ban on alcohol. I know some of the states put in place limits, but they were ridiculous limits. You could only buy two cases of beer and two bottles of wine a day, or two bottles of spirits a day. Now, I don't drink, so I don't really know, but I imagine that if you consumed the full daily limit that Australia allowed, I don't think you'd even remember the coronavirus. South Africa, no alcohol. And it led to this beautiful sign going up the other day as the ban was lifted. It said, only 20 people can attend a funeral because the spirit has left the body. But thankfully, 200 people can stand in the bottle shop for the spirit to enter the body. Someone trying to study the weight of the soul, a humorous bottle shop owner mixing up the concepts of spirit and soul, it only further goes to prove how the language and the concept of soul is so deeply embedded within us. The soul leaving the body, the spirit entering the body, this is part of everyday language for Christians and non-Christians alike. Today, of course, as I said, is Pentecost. The day God's Holy Spirit, the real spirit, is poured out upon his people. It's the day that the Holy Spirit enters into us and becomes part of us empowering us, interceding for us, and as Reverend Ray Nutley spoke about two weeks ago, revealing God to us and connecting us to God in the most powerful, intimate, and beautiful way. The Spirit resonates with our soul. Last week, we spent time looking at the nature and the health of our souls. We looked at how our soul is who we are. It integrates body, mind, and will to be in step with God's Spirit and in tune with God's will for us. Today we continue the series on soul keeping and how to care for this most important part of you by looking at the Spirit and the soul. What does God's Spirit do for our soul? How do we know if we are in tune with God's Spirit? What does being in step with God's Spirit even actually mean? Before we be, can we begin uh, looking at ways of caring for the soul. What does a healthy soul, a cared-for soul, actually even look like? What are we aiming for? No conversation on a healthy soul can happen without us looking at what makes a soul unhealthy. In our language, we use words like lost souls or ruined souls. We sometimes speak of Evangelists as people who save souls or those who heal souls. There's a broad acknowledgement that, that souls are something that can be healthy or unhealthy. That the health or sickness of a soul is dependent on a few factors. But nothing more so than sin. Nothing destroys a soul quicker than sin. If a healthy soul is one that integrates body, mind, and will and heart with the will of God, then sin disintegrates it. It disintegrates the soul. An unhealthy soul is one that is disintegrated from the will of God. At odds with the body and mind and will, sin disintegrates the soul. A lost soul isn't actually so much about some sort of eternal destination, as I said last week. A lost soul is the condition of the soul where the body, mind, and spirit are actually working against one another 
and against God's will for us. It's a situation of conflict and unease that you feel in the depths of who you are. An uncomfortability with, with what's going on. <clears throat> it's a condition where, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, there are sinful desires inside of you, and these war against your soul. Our souls hold together. That, or they, they integrate our wills, which are our choices and our desires. They integrate our minds with its thoughts and feelings and aspirations. They, they hold together our bodies with its appetites and behaviors and habits. And those are all meant to be held in perfect harmony with the will of God. That is an integrated soul. That's why Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with what? With your heart, with your strength, with your mind, and with your soul. He connects these, uh, these parts together. This is the connection with God. This is no coincidence that he mentions these different things. This is an integration of the soul. What sin does, <clears throat> excuse me for a second. <clears throat> Sorry. What sin does is it breaks this connection. It destroys the harmony. It disintegrates the soul. And once again, our language reflects this. People will say things like, my life is falling apart. Disintegration. They will say, I can't get my act together. Disconnectedness. Or I'm going to pieces. Or sometimes even, I'm coming apart at the seams. It's this language of disconnection, this language of disintegration, of souls that are crying out to be in harmony because they know they are meant to be made whole. Sin destroys that. And when we talk about sin, we're not just talking about the things that we do. It's also the things that we don't do. The kindness that we don't show. The love that we don't give. The care or concern for those who are suffering that we don't do. As much as you didn't do this to the least of these, says Jesus, you, you're not doing it for me. And it's not weighted either. We tend to think, we in our human minds, because of our legal system, we think of sin in terms of categories of seriousness. Sin isn't in categories of seriousness. Sin is sin because the consequence of it is all the same to the soul. It disconnects us. Peter says that it wages war against the soul. Don't do sinful things, he says. Any sinful things. You are waging war in your soul. <clears throat> Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And we often take that to mean an eternal punishment. But that's kind of the final payout. So I looked at this passage, you think, well, well, that's the last thing. Paul doesn't say that the superannuation payout of sin is death, or the retirement package of sin is death, or the pension fund payout of sin is death. It's the wages of sin. And wages are paid every fortnight, every week, in small little increments. A disintegrated soul is one that is dying little by little each and every day. 
This is serious stuff. The sin that disintegrates the soul. And before you say, well, I'm doing okay, understand that for all of us, the very the nature of the sinful nature in itself, by its existence, almost by definition, wants to justify that it's doing okay. It wants to justify little actions as not being that bad. <clears throat> That's the sinful nature. I'm not that bad. I'm okay. I read a funny story of the kind of justification where we think it's not that bad. And I hope, I hope you're not guilty of this little description that I'm, I'm going to tell you about. Um, but you may have come along it somewhere in, in your life and maybe something you've justified. If you're a teacher, you will know this well. But John Ortberg cites an actual study that was done by Eastern Connecticut University that shows a very high rate of death amongst students' relatives towards the end of semesters. They saw this trend happening and they decided to actually do a study about it. And they found some interesting things. They found that these relatives tend to die mostly in the week before final exams or the week before final papers are due. And you know who snuffs it most often? Grandma. Grandma's the favorite to get the chop. The study showed that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before a midterm exam and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Worse than that, grandmothers of students who are not doing well are at an even higher risk. Students who are failing, well, their grandmothers are 50 times more likely to die than students' grandmothers uh, where the student is doing well. So they concluded the study by saying this, that if you are a grandmother, do not let your grandchild go to uni. It will kill you, especially if your grandchild isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. Little acts of dishonesty, they shape us. They change how we view ourselves and how we, as we justify these things with reasons that we think make sense. But little by little, it destroys, it erodes our harmony with God because we are connected. We are souls. Everything is connected. And you know, it's little things which probably sneak up on us faster than we realize. Things like standing in the express queue at the supermarket when you know you have more than 10 items in your basket. Or trying to get on a plane when it isn't quite your turn to board because you're in a hurry. Or maybe blaming traffic when you're late when it wasn't really traffic. Or, or saying that a, an email must have landed in your junk email box or, or whatever it is. There are so many little things where we pretend and then we justify but we die a little bit each and every time. And those are just the little things. We pretend about some other things as well. Our anger, our jealousy, our hatred, our rage, our meanness, our selfishness, our lust, our indifference, our lack of care for those who suffer. Sin 
disintegrates the soul. But praise God that the Spirit integrates the soul. Our souls long for God's Spirit. The disciples at Pentecost, they were waiting for the Spirit of God. It wasn't just because Jesus told them to do so. They knew that they needed the Spirit. They were still hiding. Something had to change. The Spirit integrates the soul. And what of the people that Peter was preaching to? Verse 37 tells us that when they heard what Peter had to say, they were cut to the heart. These are people who were part of the crucifixion. They were cut to the heart. What must we do? They ask with this air of desperation, this air of, of seeking an internal yearning for connection with God. The Spirit convicts us, which is far more than just a, a sense of pain over consequences or, or perhaps the, the fear of getting caught. It's more than just a sense of feeling sorry or, or having, uh, uh, having remorse. The integration of the Spirit is for us a God-given ache for goodness. I love that phrase, a God-given ache for goodness. It's a God-given moment in which we see both the soul that we are and the soul that we want to be, the soul that God wants us to be. Like the disciples at Pentecost, the integration of the Spirit is that desire to become what we know God wants us or created us to be. It's the beginning of the process of no longer deceiving ourselves, of no longer justifying away little moments of brokenness and disintegration. The Spirit integrates the soul, giving to us each this God-given ache for goodness deep within us. It's a recognition or an acknowledgement that that ache is the, is the beginning of healing, the beginning of integration, the beginning of connectedness. The people, says the book of Acts, are cut to the core. They are moved and they ask people, what can we do? Healing for them is beginning. Integration is starting to happen. The power of the Holy Spirit is at work. When I was in grade five, many, many years ago, but the clarity of this memory will speak something of the reality of disintegration of the soul and the power of that God-given ache for goodness. Grade five, all of 10 years old, I think it was, I forgot my PE kit at home. And it was an inter-house sports day, and I knew I was going to be in real trouble. We had been warned not to leave those kits at home. So... I sat down at my desk and I devised a plan. And I wrote myself a note excusing me for not having brought my PE kit. And then at the bottom, I forged my mother's signature. Of course, this wasn't so bad. I justified to myself. After all, I wasn't really I'm honest with myself, feeling absolutely wonderful that day. And I'm sure that mum would have written me a note if only I had remembered to ask. I just forgot to ask. So this next best thing will be fine. It's really just kind of 
taking out the middleman, or the middlewoman in this case, because mum's signature was easier than dad's. So definitely taking out the middlewoman. My teacher was a member of our church. And when I presented her the note, which, uh, let's be honest, hadn't gone through Grammarly, hadn't been spell-checked in any way. So in truth, the signature wasn't the only problem uh, with my deception. <clears throat> but I gave her the note. And she looked up at me with these knowing eyes and asked just one question, which told me immediately that she knew. She said, who wrote this note? And I said back to her, the second bit of disintegration, my mother, out came the lie. And she looked at me again, <clears throat> took a second or two, and said, okay. And she filed away the note. I thought that I had been bust for sure. But that afternoon when I got home, mum said nothing. She hadn't been phoned. Woohoo! Nailed it! Got away with it! But the next day, <clears throat> I couldn't look the teacher in the eyes. It wasn't guilt. I mean, like I said, she hadn't called my mother to rat me out. And at all of 10 years old, I was pretty proud of the fact that I had managed to get away with it. It wasn't guilt. It was the fact that the teacher knew <clears throat> that I wasn't the person who I said I was that I wasn't honest, that I wasn't truthful. And whereas previously I had been trusted in her class, that wasn't going to happen anymore. And there was this deep ache, this longing within me to get back what I had, which was now gone. It was a God-given ache for goodness. God's Spirit at work within me. At the end of that day, <clears throat> I told the teacher the truth and apologized to her. And it felt really, really good. And she said to me, and Stuart, you know what you have to do now. Playing dumb, I said, no, I don't. And she said, you have to go home and apologize to your mother. Well, <clears throat> that might have been a different story. But as much as I knew that that wasn't going to be fun, I knew that even though my mother didn't know, the deception would continue <clears throat> to disintegrate the soul. So I had to tell her. So mom, if you're watching this, 35 years ago, when I was 10 years old, I forged your signature and I'm really sorry. There, I said it, I'm over. It's great to get that off my chest after all these years. No, I'm just kidding. I told my mother that day what happened, and the same day, and the healing began. It wasn't guilt. It wasn't the fear of getting caught. It was this God-given ache for goodness, a God-given desire for wholeness and for integration. A desire to be the person God made me to be. Having both that teacher and I know the real truth about me, having us both know what I could be, 
and what I am? Well, that's for me an example of what that God-given desire for goodness and integration is all about. I wanted to be the person she thought I was or she knew that I could be. That is the work of the Spirit. That's what it is all about as it integrates the soul. But the Spirit also directs the soul. Or to put it another way, the Spirit prioritizes or, or orders the soul. Our soul is needy by nature. It needs to be cared for. That's why we're doing this series. How do we care for our souls? We have this, this whole part of us that needs to be looked after. They're in need of care. And being in need, they have this unlimited desire to be filled, to be integrated and connected with God. In fact, the soul's infinite capacity to, um, to need or to desire is only matched by God's infinite capacity to give. Ortberg says, the unlimited neediness of the soul is matched only by the unlimited grace of God. It's like a mirror image. Our soul's problem, though, isn't its neediness, it's our own fallenness. We need, our need was meant to point us to God, and instead, we fasten our minds and our bodies and our wills on other sources of ultimate devotion. This is what the Bible calls idolatry, and it's far more common than what you would think. Idolatry is not just the worshipping of a golden calf in, by the Israelites in the desert. Idolatry is the sin of the soul meeting its need with anything that distances us from God. It's the sin almost beneath the sin. Any time that we allow some competing desire to have a higher priority than God's will for our lives, that's idolatry. The moment we put something ahead of God, the moment something is put on a pedestal higher than God, the moment we choose something that draws us away from God, that something becomes an idol. And when you boil it down, <clears throat> all sin involves idolatry. Meeting the soul's needs with anything that distances us from God. And sometimes we don't even know what our souls are truly devoted to. John Ortberg writes a few statements which, if we listen to honestly, may reveal some of the true devotions of our souls. As I read them to you, see, see if, uh, if, they, uh, if you relate to any of them in any ways. I think about money a lot, as in getting more of it. Sometimes I fantasize about winning the lottery or coming into a big inheritance. I have a mental wish list of the things I'd like to buy if money were no object. Or, I wish I had more power and control over others. It seems as if my spouse and kids just don't respect me enough. Ditto for work. I know I would handle that power carefully. I would just like to be a more powerful person. I have missed important family events in order to pursue my career. I justify it by telling myself and my family that this is what it takes to provide for them. I tell myself that if I keep working hard, I will reach a level where I will be able to relax a little and spend more time with the people I love. I consider myself an honest person, someone with good values. But if I'm really honest, 
I would set some of those values aside to pursue something important to me if I knew that nobody would know about it. I have desires that I prefer not to have my spouse know about. If I'm confronted by any of those desires, I become defensive and try to justify it. I have secrets that I'm willing to protect, willing to lie to protect. More than once I have had arguments over something I wanted to buy, but my spouse did not want me to buy it. Aside from my family and others I love, there are things in my life that if they were lost or destroyed would crush and devastate me. If my doctor told me that I had to give up alcohol or cigarettes or red meat or salt or sugar or caffeine or whatever because it was seriously putting my health at risk, I would find it difficult to the point of maybe being impossible. I likely would not tell anyone in order to avoid accountability. If you asked my family what was most important to me, they would likely refer to my job or my hobby or my making money or me doing things that I like doing or my cell phone. They would probably not say it was one of them. I love God and I want more closely to follow Him. But there's one thing that always seems to get in the way and it is fill in the blank. When something is more important than God, even subtly, that's idolatry. And sadly, idolatry cannot be overcome by just our willpower alone. But here's where the beauty of a, a spirit directing our souls comes in. We cannot replace an idol just by turning away from it. We have to turn towards something else. That is the very definition of repentance. The first thing Peter says to the people as they ask what they should do, he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent. So often we take that moment to just mean saying sorry. I think that we have sometimes made repentance into a simple act of confession. But repentance is more than just saying sorry. It's turning away from something, but turning to something else. The Spirit that gives us, it is the Spirit of God that gives us something to turn to. It directs our souls. Timothy Keller calls it an overwhelming positive passion. Like when Jacob went to work for uh, seven years for Rachel, we're told that for him it felt just like a few days. Why? Because there is an overwhelming positive passion. And it changes everything, even the feeling of time itself. Zacchaeus had a positive passion for money. But after he meets Jesus, he starts just giving it all away. All of it. How? Why? Well, he had a new positive passion. The disciples before Pentecost, fearful for their lives, hiding, unsure and uncertain. The Spirit comes upon them. They are forever changed. There's a positive passion for spreading the good news. I said earlier on that the soul is needy. It needs direction. It needs focus. Well, the Spirit directs the soul. The Spirit focuses the soul. And lastly, the Spirit satisfies the soul. 
any other passion will never truly suffice. For the soul was made to be in harmony, to be in sync, as Alan said in our connecting conversation last week. It's made to be in sync and integrated with the will and the heart of God. It is the only thing that will satisfy that ache for goodness. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 84 that the soul yearns, even faints, for God. Last week we looked at, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. It is only God that satisfies the soul. Peter says to the crowds, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is for you, for your children, and for all the Lord God will call. And then we read, they were devoted to God. We're told that they were filled with awe. They had glad and sincere hearts. They were meeting together in the temple courts. They were worshiping and breaking bread together in their homes. They were giving to those who had need. God was adding to their number daily. This is the picture of integrated souls. This is the picture of souls that are satisfied, of souls that are in harmony with God. This is the picture of connectedness. The very heart of who we are is a soul that truly desires God, a soul that desires His Spirit. And when we turn toward Him, when we seek His will, when we are honest with ourselves and with God about the state of our souls, when we are awakened to the state of our souls, when we are receptive to His guidance and willing to be obedient to His leading, that need of the soul will be filled and will be matched by the grace of the Spirit of God that overflows into every aspect of who we are. What does the Spirit do for our souls? How does the Spirit fit into soul-keeping and caring for the most important part of ourselves? It enables all the aspects of soul-keeping. The Spirit reveals the disintegration of sin within our soul. The Spirit integrates the soul with this God-given ache for goodness. The Spirit directs the soul as we are made aware of our, of our idols and the need to repent as we turn toward a, a new positive passion in Christ. And the Spirit brings a deep and inward unmatchable sense of satisfaction, of being in His will, of feeling in harmony and in tune and in sync with God as our souls, uh, as our souls are integrated and sing with His Spirit working in us. Is that the work of the Spirit in your life on this day of Pentecost? Is it well with your soul? If your spirit is crying out for harmony with God, today is the day for that Spirit to lead you. Today is the day for you to find that sense of, of being in sync with God's will for you. There's a beautiful song by Chris Tomlin. We put the link up on the Facebook page just before the service. And the song is called Awakening. And I invite you after the service, after I've finished in just a minute or two, to play that song. And let that song be a prayer for you. Awake my soul and sing, he says. In the day of Pentecost, come Holy Spirit. Awaken our souls. Bring us that sense of connectedness and satisfaction.
of being in harmony with God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, as we have looked at the Spirit and the soul, and what the Spirit does in, in revealing the disintegration of, of what sin causes, as we see how the Spirit integrates the soul with this God-given ache for goodness, as you direct us and give us a new positive passion, taking us away from, from things we have maybe even unknowingly made idols, as you bring us that sense of satisfaction. Would you awaken our souls, we pray. You are the only one who knows the state or the health of each of our souls. You're the one who knows what we answer when, when we sit down with just ourselves and, and look into the mirror and say, is it well with our souls? You know. Sometimes we like to pretend you don't. And so, Lord, we pray that like the Spirit was poured out in Pentecost. May you be poured out upon us wherever we are, wherever lounge room we're sitting in, no matter with whom we're with. Come upon us, Holy Spirit. Bring a connectedness and harmony, we pray. We take a moment, Lord, in which we repent of those things which we've made into idols. Repent of those moments of deception. And as we turn away from one thing, we turn toward you. Fill us with a positive passion for you, we pray. Awake our souls that we may sing. Amen. Friends, as we will continue with our sermon series next week, as we look at uh, what are some of the practical ways of, of soul keeping, a reminder just of a couple of notices. The first is that uh, our Connecting Conversations happens on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. And uh, this week, my special guest is Delma Lovell. Delma, who was uh, ministering here at uh, Bundaberg and Coral Coast, It'll be great to catch up with her on Tuesday night and to chat a little bit about the spirit and the soul. So tune in to that on Facebook, 7 o'clock uh, Bundaberg time on Tuesday evening. As uh, we go our separate ways on this beautiful Sunday, this Pentecost Sunday, may God's spirit rest with you. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all and those whom we love this day and forevermore. Amen.